Hi, Kelly Naomi here. These days, the pace of life is bananas. As a single mom of two kids for the last 13 years, as economies change, as political climates change, I often ask myself, how am I supposed to keep this positive mindset everyone's talking about? And a lot of days, it is a losing battle. But I trust and believe in the God of hope who fills me with all hope and joy and peace in believing. And that's how I get my joy in the journey. So tune in wherever you are. And I hope that my stories will make you laugh and make you cry. But most of all, give you a sense of encouragement and help you to have some joy in your journey. I'm Kelly Naomi, and this is Joy in the Journey. Last week, we left off at uh, kind of a midpoint in my grief cycle after my daughter's father had been um, killed. I was dealing with that. I was dealing with being a 24-year-old single mom. I was dealing with grief and loss and heartbreak and confusion and trying to love this little perfect baby bundle while just not having anything inside of me and um you know kind of trying to go through the motions at church and convince people that I was okay and I was working and there's just so much chaos and so much everything that was just kind of like floating around me in this cloud and I felt like I just could not get up from under it. It really did just kind of feel never ending. It was like um, this psalm, you know, like how long must I endure my trouble? How long will sorrow fill my heart day and night? How long, how long, how long? And I was like, I was desperately waiting to escape my grief. And like I said before, there are different stages of grief, which we know that we're moving through grief when we've hit them, when we've hit the denial, when we've hit the anger. Um, when we've gone in the bargaining stage, but there's no time frame on how long each of those lasts. And there is a definite difference between being trapped in grief to the point of depression and you just can't get out of it and just staying there because it feels comfortable. Um, And I think I was somewhere in between. So there's definitely a bravery in holding the space for lament in the face of suffering and going through those grief cycles in a healthy way, I'll say in a healthy way, getting help, talking to someone, letting people in your life that you can trust to process those things with you. I wanted to be rescued and protected. I wanted everything to just be reversed. Um, I wanted that tragedy to never have happened. And I, and what I felt to be like injustice that led me to this edge that I was standing at. I kind of just felt like I was at a breaking point. Can I really raise this baby? You know, and I, and I did mention I was living with my parents and I was working. Um, but just like at that time, it was like, no matter what anyone tried to do, I just, it was like it didn't reach the inside of me. It didn't reach my heart. Like I told my therapist at one point, it felt like I had MRSA in my soul. Like it was just black and getting darker and darker. 
because I wasn't just now holding space for lament in this face of suffering. I was letting it consume me. And so instead of doing what I would tell someone now to do, which was take it to the Lord in prayer, um, really press in, um, make sure you find self-help groups. I, I, you know, I can say all that now reflectively because I know that those are the things that would have helped me had I stuck with them. But like most people going through deep depression or grief, you're looking for instant gratification and an instant way to feel happy. Unfortunately, in my case, that meant for going for the guy at church who sat in the back row with a leather jacket and sunglasses on. Um, and, you know, he, he did the sound while I was doing choir and he was great handling my two-year-old, my little floof. She was two by that time and I was on the worship team and so we were spending a lot of time together. And people saw that our relationship was developing, but nobody was really like commenting on just the world of trouble I was about to get myself into. And uh, fast forward that hot mess, um, I ended up with my son. I was pregnant with my son. And I remember I was sitting on my couch at home. Um, It was probably about two weeks from this fight that I had with this guy. He was showing signs of being abusive already. He would like, he would push me, nudge me, want me to pick him up from work. And, um, one time I was, mind you, I was two minutes late. I had to pick up my child from daycare. I got out of work. I had to get all the way from La Mesa to Chula Vista, like the end of Chula Vista, where like Main Street begins in Chula Vista, in that like industrial area. And I was going to pick him up from work, and I was two minutes late because there was traffic, y'all. It's like southbound traffic. If you're from San Diego, uh, you know that southbound traffic on the 805 after 5 is not great. So it was a miracle that I actually was only two minutes late. I get there. He's sitting there with a map quest in his hand, mad, like filled with rage because I was two minutes late. He looks like an idiot because he's waiting out here for his girlfriend. And so we got in this big fight where he decides he's going to throw a CD at my head. And um, I don't know. I don't know what kind of strength was that. I just knew my baby is in the backseat. And this idiot is trying to cause a fight with me while I'm driving on the freeway. So I pulled over into the shoulder of the freeway and I unlocked the door and I had this really like faulty, (laughs) it was like a really nice sentiment, but someone had given me this Ford Explorer, but it had all these little like, you know, you like inherit a car that has like funny, funny things about it. Well, this car, like the car door could just kind of like open, like with enough force on it. And so I don't even know how. I contorted my body and I literally kicked this guy out of my car and I left him on the side of the freeway on 8th Street in Chula Vista and I was like, I don't need to see you ever again. So, two weeks after that, I'm sitting on the couch feeling extra nauseated. It occurs to me that I'm pregnant and I take a test And, you know, it was just not the same. It was not the same. 
when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, I was so excited. I was in love with her dad. It was, we weren't married, but it was still just another, it was a different situation altogether. And I had just, it was so much happening. Like my dad, you know, in his fifties was graduating with his architecture degree. And I went to that graduation and I'm thinking, here I am, I'm on the eve of now having two kids under five before 20. I was still in my mid twenties. Like when my son was born, I was 26. So I was, this was just really rough. And there, I couldn't really tell anybody at church yet. So like I left church really for a little while. Cause I didn't want to I didn't want to tell anybody what was happening in my life. I just, I just pulled out of life and, uh, I was ready to really pull out of life. Um, I flirted with a lot of things. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever been there, but I flirted with the fact that I was worth more dead than alive to my daughter. And that if I were to just kill myself, I didn't have to bring another baby in this world to disappoint with the life that I couldn't give it. And I had my daughter and she would be loved by her grandparents and by her aunt and everyone would be fine without me. I flirted with abortion. I flirted with many things. And I remember one day just being at my end and my family had gone out to celebrate my dad's graduation and I was sitting at home and Field of Dreams was on and I really am not sure why, you know, it has no correlation to what I was going through really, except for the fact that this person was choosing to give up a dream for a grander purpose. But there is a part in Field of Dreams. It's a movie from like 89 with Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones. And he's a corn, uh, Kevin Costner's a corn farmer in Iowa and his farm's not making a lot of money. He's about to go into foreclosure. And all of a sudden he starts having these random dreams about tearing up his cornfield to build a baseball field. Crazy. Anyway, he goes on this adventure, hearing the voices. Please don't follow the voices on adventures. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he goes, he meets James Earl Jones, and then their visions and their dreams and their voices are aligned. They're hearing, seeing the same things. All brings them to this guy, Archibald Graham, um, who's who shows up for them like a like a like a teenager. He's like, my name is Archie Graham, and uh, um, you know he wants to go play baseball. They take him back to the field. Turns out it was all for him. He goes there. Everyone's happy. All these ghosts that live in the corn are are on his baseball field, and uh, he. He's at, you know, he's out there and, um, there's this really dramatic scene where his little daughter is, is on the bleachers watching the game and she's trying to convince her uncle, who's also a banker, trying to make them sell their farm just to save money. And she's eating a hot dog and she, they're struggling over her, tell, you know, and she falls backwards. She's choking on this hot dog. And now the, the young rookie kid, Archie, he's like, he's looking and instinctively, because he's a doctor instinctively he knows that he needs to 
go help this girl. But the problem is that if he crosses over these particular sets of stones, that he won't be able to stay on that field as a baseball player anymore. He'll revert to himself and be back in real life. And he'll be able to save her, but he won't be able to go back. And he finally makes the decision to step over the line and put his own life, his own dreams on hold because he has to save this child. And he steps over the rocks. And now this brother, who's been a naysayer about this whole thing happening, finally sees all the baseball players on the field. He is tripped out in disbelief because he now believes. And then Dot Graham is walking over to the child. He, you know, gives her the Heimlich or whatever. You know, thanks Kevin Costner for even bringing them there so that he can have that time on the field and you know, it's the field of dreams. And so I'm sitting there in more grief watching this movie, contemplating life and death, literally in the middle of writing uh, an end of life note to my parents about what's going on. And that scene just spoke to me so much that it's a great sacrifice, but this baby deserves to live and you deserve to live. And when we make those sacrifices, there's so much blessing that comes from them. All this out of this movie, you guys, it's ridiculous. I mean, it was a touching movie, but I don't think when the authors wrote it or the producers produced it, they were thinking someday some girl's going to be sitting here deciding whether or not she wants to commit suicide or have an abortion and it will save her. But it was just one of those moments where God used something so, so basic to just change my heart and change my mind and we went on to this phase of looking at open adoption and and other things but the main point there is I decided that in that moment I knew I was going to have a boy I was going to name him Graham and I felt a sense of peace just wash over me So I just, I totally felt like this peace wash over me. I crumpled up the letter and instead started writing a new letter to help my parents understand that uh, here I am, your daughter, I'm pregnant again. Um, This was not a picnic, uh, how we got here. And um, I'm not going to have an abortion, but I am going to look into open adoption. And um, (laughs) I did not want to do that. Um, In my heart of hearts, I wanted to keep my baby, but I just wasn't sure how I was going to to do it and notice the inflection over the eye. There were a lot of things in my 20s and even actually coming out of that in my early 30s that I always just kind of felt like it was this pressure for me to do it. I had to do it. I had to save the situation. I had to think the situation through. I was responsible for my own consequences. I was responsible for helping other people out of their moods, out of their depression. I, I, I. And so now with my daughter and her not having a dad and, and this baby I was pregnant with, and you know, I didn't know he was a boy yet, but I knew in my spirit he was a boy. And 
he wasn't going to have a dad and I'm still living at home and there's not enough room for all three of us. Like it was just so intense. And so I was like, okay, we'll find like nobody else is going to want him here. And so I went the route of open adoption and everyone was just so, oh, we love you. Oh, we understand. Oh, it was just, you know, lavishing it on. Uh, when I, when I chose the parents that I chose, it registered in me later that I chose them because the father looked a lot like my son's dad and uh, I mean my daughter's dad sorry Um, and so I picked them and there was so much reticence like even in our in our interactions because the late the woman she would just she would call me all the time and she was always sending me things and there was just so much pressure again. Now I was in this space where what if I change my mind? Now I can't change my mind. They're so invested. I have to protect them. I have to protect their feelings. And, um, I just, it was, it was just a really tough time. I don't know who of you who is listening or will ever listen to this particular podcast has gone through having to make the choice of giving up a child for adoption, but it's not an easy one. In fact, it will probably be on the list of the hardest things that you'll ever have to do in your life. And dealing with the motivation behind it is even worse because there are parts of you that feel selfish and there are parts of you that feel just apathetic. It's just the weirdest thing to explain and during that time, you know, that whole eight months of pregnancy, nine months of pregnancy that you go through and this baby is growing and you're grappling with the fact that you're feeling him moving, kicking, um, you're dreaming about him and you don't want to because you have to give him away and, and you have another baby to take care of and you're still trapped in the grief and loss of your loved one. And it, it was just so much at that time in my life but the only thing that I knew that was true is that I really didn't want to give him up and I didn't know how to unmake a decision and I had not signed anything it wasn't going to be a closed adoption it was going to be open and so I had time to sign the papers well after uh I I kind of like we had been at church my parents and I we had a meeting with our pastor at that time and he was just like you know even after meeting them he's like are you sure you want to do this and I think that a pastor is a lot like a father and it's scary to let them in sometimes because they can see things in their flock that that the flock can't see and I think looking at me with his father heart with his um, spiritual insight he knew I didn't want to do this and He didn't superimpose beliefs or ideas. He didn't judge me. He just said, just really think this through because this is something that God is giving to you and maybe it's not up to you to handle. So I left that meeting. A couple weeks later, I go into labor on a Sunday. So none of my support group that I eventually found, which was really just my, my, my dearest, dearest, just like a sister to me, Lori, um, has just been literally by my side in like the most random places of my life forever. Um, and you know, she was doing, um, Sunday school for the night service and, um, Pat, 
uh, my like she's like my godmom, my aunt. Like she had to go to church, and so many people were there with me um, that were supposed to be at church, and they either came for a moment just to tell me that I was supported, or they came to sit and stay. And um, it was just that whole experience. The the nurses knew that. I was going to, this was an adoption situation, but it was open adoption and, and they were just so like gentle and like loving and caring. And the only request that I had was that the adoptive mother not be let in right away because I needed that time with my son. Like I needed to, I wanted to see him and they had, they had chosen the name for him, Jason, which meant healer. Um, they didn't, you know, particularly like the name Graham, but had decided that he could keep the, the, it as a middle name. Um, and so Jason Graham was born on a Sunday night, um, at 11.59 PM on December 4th. And man, that was like the weird, it was when my daughter was born, the family, every, the family was around. Everyone was waiting. There was the whole drama that you normally see. Was my water going to break? Are they going to have to break my water? Oh, get her to the hospital. Like it was a rush and it was chaotic, but it was, it was fun. But when I was having to be in labor with my son, there was just, there were so many unknown variables and so much emotion because I'm getting ready to give up this person who I've known for nine months away and I just wanted that moment to myself and so the doctor was late getting there we kept telling him I was in labor she's in labor it's gonna come out and the nurse the nurse was like look we really we can't hold these knees together you're gonna have to get here and so he finally gets there and he's like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I was just so tired and the nurse looks at him and says look I don't care if you're tired. You're not a doctor anymore. I'm going to deliver the baby. And she was kidding, but I laughed so hard that my son just, he laughed right out. (laughs) And I cried like these super joyful, sad tears. And they put him on my chest and he turned his head to look at me. Like it was just so dramatic. And the people who were in the room explained it as just like this light was literally just focused right on us. And everyone was laughing and my mom made it at the very last minute to see him be born. And I just, my heart was just broken. Like I could not believe I was making that decision. And so we get released from the hospital. I, I spend a, like, they let me stay an extra night just because they knew I needed that time. And when I finally left and I was putting him in his little bear outfit, it looked like he was in a bear sleeping bag and I was just talking to him about me and his sister and that I will always know where he's at and we were you know having this long long speech and I just it was so hard to let him go and I was so frustrated with the the woman because every time she would come in the room he would cry and I it was just so much and so I finally left and a friend took me home and we went to eat and I got there and my daughter was waiting And I hugged her because, I mean, she's just this little face looking at me from those stairs like you were gone and now you're back. And 
she kept patting my belly like something was missing and she asked me where was her brother I never told my daughter I was having a boy I didn't really you know oh mommy's tummy I didn't do any of that because I didn't want her to get attached and I I've always wondered like how did you how did you know so we spent a couple of days together just me and her and I was recuperating and I hadn't yet signed those papers because I just couldn't sign the papers. And the the woman, she kept calling me and, and I know, you know, not being completely insensitive, that is stressful. She's got the baby. They're at home in San Francisco. I can't sign the papers. Like I can't bring myself to do it. And I just needed a couple of days and I kept asking her not to send me pictures and she would send me the pictures, but she didn't look happy she would be wearing like the baby Bjorn but it would be like so low and away from her that there was just really no bonding happening and every time she would call me he would be screaming in the background like I just I was so like what is going on like all of these things warning bells in my mind were going off this is not right I did not tell you to do this like I was hearing God say, I did not, I did not tell you to do this. This is not the direction. And I was just going against it anyway. Cause I was like, nobody wants him. I'm the only one who wants him. I can't bring him somewhere where he's unloved. And I thought my dad didn't want him. I thought my mom didn't want, it was just so much going on. And so I'm at, I'm at church a week after he's born and I'm sitting at church and the, the, it was a guest pastor and he was talking about Hannah and I'm listening to him and I don't exactly remember what he said verbatim, but I just remember that what he said, I just, all of a sudden it just clicked in me. Like there is nothing on earth outside of God's control. Like he is taking care of you and, um, you know, and Chloe, and even though her dad passed away, and even, you know, all these things that kept coming against me, God was always there providing. And instead of allowing those moments to anchor me in faith, I was being anchored in fear of the unknown, fear of what was going to come next, and fear that I couldn't do it on my own, and fear that I was going to be ostracized for this thing, and fear of the judgment. And I was the only I had not just stopped long enough to pause and sit and just allow God to just take care of me. And just something clicked there when I was sitting there at church on a Wednesday night listening to this pastor just remind me that God is bigger than any situation that I'm in and that he was going to make a way for this family, me, my son, my daughter, and I needed to go get my son. Like it was, I, there is no clearer message. And I tell you friends, there have been so many times, um, just in my parenting life where I've, you know, considered through some of the hardships, like, did I do the right thing? Did I make the right choice? And I can tell you 100% yes, because there has never been a moment where we were not in the arms of Jesus, me and my children. There has never been a moment when we have not been provided for, when supernatural deliverance from poverty situations or just the craziest things, we have always just been in his hands. And so 
I can say without a doubt now at this space in my life and my parenting journey that I did not make a mistake by getting my son. It would have been a huge mistake if I had gone through with this really life altering decision for three humans out of fear. That's the takeaway here. It's not to condemn anyone if adoption is something that you've chosen to do and you've gone through it. It is hard. It is a hard decision no matter which table it is. Whether you're the adoptive parent, whether you are the person giving up the child, whether you're the child, the family of the child. Like There is no way to to dilute or you know, shrink the level of emotionality behind the decision within the adoption process. But I will tell you that doing it out of fear and not out of a sound mind and making that choice is a huge, that's a mistake. And, um, you want to make sure that you carry out a, a decision like that with resolve. It's going to hurt regardless, but if your resolve is that you really truly want to do this so that this child can have a better life and you know it's going to hurt like hell, but you're trusting God to to recover you and your heart and you really just want to give that gift of the child, yes, like God may be calling on you to be that blessing for that family. But if your thought process is that you're afraid and you can't do it and you don't want to miss your life, like... There are so many resources, so many avenues, so many people who, if you just reached out, would help you in your process. Don't make that kind of choice out of fear. It's hard to come back from. And so I did. I stood up from church. I left that service and I was like, I'm going to go get my son. And there's this scripture, Romans 8.28, I believe, but it's that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I can't put a better scripture to everything that happened next. I made that choice solely based on the fact that I was believing that God made a way, that this is what God wanted for me to trust in him to take care of me and my family, to be the head of my family. And there, I was met with so much provision. It was unreal. Um, and in a 24 hour period, I had everything that I could possibly need to go get my son. And I knew without any doubt that God was like able to control the results of history and my own personal experience here. And I just, I started to, for the first time um, since finding out I was pregnant with my son, to see my life in a completely new way, to see that some things, you know, and to see that things could work for my good, even when it was a bad choice that I made to get there. Um, it was really the first time that I had to grip on and God really allowed me to see his grace. Um, it was just, 
amazing. I I just, that was amazing grace. And I, I think that was really the first time I'll say that I encountered what it meant to experience God's grace. And I hope you'll experience God's grace as you go through your week this week, that you will experience joy in your journey as well. We are not done. Next week, I will be continuing my story. I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope you've been encouraged by it. And I hope that you are able to see the God in the story because he has been so prevalent in even the darkest spaces. And I hope that that's true for you too. So here's to joy in your journey. Until next time.